0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
1: Tonight we are in Jeremiah chapter 29. It will help if you remember what we saw last week. In chapter 28, there was a false prophet, a fellow named Hananiah, that Jeremiah had to deal with. But Hananiah was there in Jerusalem, particularly in the temple. This was during the period when the high and the mighty and the king and those who would benefit Babylon had already been transported to Babylon. And so the next thing that Jeremiah wanted to include for us to read was a letter that he particularly sent to those leaders, to those captives who were already in Babylon. And he wanted to let them know the same thing that he had argued with Hananiah about. Hananiah had announced, as all the false prophets were announcing, that God intended to bring the captives back out of Babylon, bring them back to Jerusalem, bring the king back, reestablish them, peace and safety, And that that was all going to happen within a span of two years. And of course, Jeremiah's prophecy was that it was going to be 70 years that they were going to be in Babylon. Jeremiah's letter that we're going to read here in this chapter is not only an assertion yet again that this is going to be a long time. We know that it's 70 years But then he's going to encourage the people that are in Babylon to settle in there, to work, to get married, because that's going to be your life now for a while. God is going to preserve you. He's going to restore you. He's going to bring you back eventually, but probably not in your lifetimes And that is very, very different than what the false prophets were saying. Well, that's the first big segment of chapter 29 is this letter that he is going to send to the leaders, the prophets, the priests, the elders there in Babylon. And then in the next section of the chapter, he's going to deal with people are reacting negatively to that message. So much so that the third section is going to be talking about yet another false prophet who is in Babylon. And that false prophet is saying the same thing that Hananiah had been saying in Jerusalem, that it was going to be a short time. So the thing that Jeremiah is struggling with most frequently here among the false prophets is that they keep saying peace and safety. They keep saying that the restoration is going to happen immediately, within a two-year time span. Jeremiah has to keep saying, number one, you're going to be there in Babylon for a long time. So settle in, get used to it. And then number two, one of the things that the false prophets both in Jerusalem and in Babylon are saying is, don't worry if you're in Jerusalem. You're going to be safe there because the king is going to return soon. The people are going to return soon. The nobles are going to return soon. The priests are going to return. And it's going to be just like it was before. So don't worry about it. When in fact, Jeremiah is going to tell them, If you're still in Jerusalem, you're under the punishment of God. He's going to kill you with the sword and the famine. He's going to destroy you like the rotten fruit you are. So there's no great advantage to remaining in Jerusalem. So these prophecies that had to do with the restoration of Jerusalem... The deliverance of the people who had been transported from Babylon back to Jerusalem, those were all false. Now, those were also very appealing prophecies. Those sounded good to the people, and as a consequence, a lot of people were deceived by these false prophets. So we're also going to see the condemnation of those prophets for the way that they are causing these people to have false hope, saying things that God never actually said, speaking in the name of the Lord when God himself had not spoken. So that's the big overview of the chapter. Chapter 29, verse 1 says, Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then the NASB puts this in parentheses, but it's a timestamp. It's an understanding of what Jeremiah is writing and when he wrote it and why he wrote it. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the court officials and the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths, had departed from Jerusalem. Okay, so that particular event has come up a few times here in the book of Jeremiah, and it would probably be beneficial to be reminded of what that's about. So keep your finger there in Jeremiah 29 and turn, if you would, to Second Kings chapter 24. Second Kings chapter 24 begins with Jehoiakim in his days, in the days of Jehoiakim. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. And then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans, bands of the Arameans, bands of the Moabites, and the bands of the Ammonites. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Surely at the command of the Lord, it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiakim, his son, became king in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come out of his land again, for the king of Babylon had taken all the belongings of the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. And Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Nahashta, the daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother, and his servants, and his captains, and his officials. So the king of Babylon took them captive in the eighth year of his reign. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king's house, And cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had put in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor. Ten thousand captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. So he led Jehoiakim away into exile to Babylon, also the king's mother and the king's wives, and his officials and the leading men of the land. He led away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war. And these, the king of Babylon brought into exile to Babylon. Okay, so that's the event that Jeremiah is making reference to here in chapter 29. And he tells us specifically that he sent this letter to Babylon to the captives who were in Babylon, and the particular captives were those who were taken when Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim and his mother and all of the high and mighty of Jerusalem and took them to Babylon. So Jeremiah 29.2 says... This was after King Jeconiah, and the queen mother, and the court officials, and the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. So how did the letter get to Babylon? This letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, who was the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying. Okay, that's all introduction to the letter. Now we're going to get into the content of the letter. You might recall that this king, Zedekiah, who is mentioned here, is the last king in the succession of kings from David's family sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. And he was a puppet king. He was a vassal king of Nebuchadnezzar and of Babylon. But that gave him the ability to get a letter to Nebuchadnezzar and then to all the captives that were there in Babylon. So verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice first off the astounding responsibility that God takes there. There are people who are in Babylon who used to live in Jerusalem who were taken captive by a strong overwhelming force, an army, a king Nebuchadnezzar and those of Babylon and even though we would look at it and say that that was political upheaval here on planet earth, the truth is it's God doing it all. God said I'm the one who sent you there as a consequence he's the God that can bring them back because he's the determining factor in all of this. And that's important to remember in the next couple of chapters that we're going to look at as God starts spelling out promises for the restoration of Judah and Israel and the ultimate rest that he is going to give them in their own land, free from their enemies, and that he's going to establish a new covenant with them. All of that is based in the sovereignty of God, the same sovereign God who could say, You've gone into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, but I sent you. Even though there was human agency that accomplished it, I'm the one who ultimately did this because I'm in control of everything. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon build houses and live in them, and plant gardens, and eat their produce. takes a while to build a house. takes a while to plant a garden and finally get some produce out of it. So God is saying, settle in. This is not going to be a short-term thing. You exiles get used to being in Babylon. Beyond that, verse 6, take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. That takes a while. He's talking generations of people now. And then, as your children grow, take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. If the captives of Jerusalem were not to do that, then they, as a number of people, would be dying off over the course of the next 70 years. But God intends that during their captivity, they're going to continue to grow as a people group, very much like how he brought Joseph and his 11 brothers down into Egypt with their families. Just a small handful of people, and out of that grew a nation of a million people over the course of the next 400 years of slavery— Same idea. Even though they are under oppression from a foreign king, they are still people who belong to God, and God can say, while you're here, increase in number, because I am still going to treat you as a nation, as a particular group of people. So build houses and live in them and plant gardens. Eat of their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. And seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. That seems counterintuitive. Babylon has taken you captive, but you need to seek the welfare of Babylon and pray to the Lord. On behalf of Babylon, for in its welfare, you will also have welfare. You'll do good if the city does good. So since you're going to be there for 70 years, pray to God that he preserves the city during the time that you're there and that there is peace in the city because then there will be peace for you, that there is abundance and food in the city because then there will be abundance and food for you. All of that is based in the premise that you're going to be there for a while. You're not going to be delivered out of there within a two-year span. Verse 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream For they prophesy falsely to you in my name, and I have not sent them, declares the Lord. So whether we're talking about in Jerusalem, in the very house of the Lord, or whether we're talking about among the captives in Babylon, one of the key features these people have to deal with is people saying, I've heard from the Lord. This is what the Lord wants me to tell you. I've heard from God. I am a prophet. Trust me when I tell you this is what God is saying. Here is God himself saying, don't listen to your prophets. Don't listen to those who have dreams or your diviners. Because they all speak to you in my name. They invoke my name as if I have spoken to them. But I have not spoken to them. I have not told them these things but they're going to make it up and say it. Uh, I am fighting the urge at this very moment to apply that to the day and age in which we live, because there are still plenty of people out there talking and saying that they are speaking in the name of the Lord, or that they are speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I really just wonder how many of them, God in heaven, is up there saying, i spoke to you what are you doing going out talking to people and telling them that you've heard from me and the surest test to know whether they have spoken from God or not is just check them against the Bible if they're saying anything the Bible doesn't say then they're making stuff up and yet people who are clearly and obviously making stuff up have these large audiences and people flock to them and Paul explains it it's people who have itching ears who are always longing to hear some new thing rather than hearing the old words, the old path, what's already been said, what God has already laid down. People think, well, that's, that's old, that's ancient. I don't need to hear that. I need some new thing. And so somebody on the TV will pop up and say, here's what the Holy Spirit just said to me. And then they'll make things up wildly And somehow that attracts an audience. It was true in Jeremiah's day. It's still true to this day because human beings haven't changed. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, verse 8, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name, I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. So now Jeremiah has laid it out clearly yet again. It's not a quick thing. It's not a two-year thing. It's a 70-year thing. We've seen it a couple times now in the book of Jeremiah, and that number does not change. It's 70 years. That is such a sure and certain number that, as we saw a couple weeks ago, that's what Daniel, who was in Babylon, after Babylon had fallen to the Medo-Persians, he, knowing the prophecy of Jeremiah, prays to God that God would keep his word his prophecy to Jeremiah, and make it a 70-year thing, because the 70 years were coming to an end. And that's when he was visited by Gabriel, who said, now I'll tell you another 70 sevens. I'll tell you the next 490 years that are the experience of Israel. So this number 70 is very important, and you can see why God, having established that 70, And knowing that he was going to establish the next 490 after that, the next 770s, knowing that, then that number is very exacting on purpose. So you can see why he would be angry when people come along and say, no, it's not going to be 70. It's going to be two or three. It's going to go quick. Don't worry about it. This is all part of God's divine plan. And he is laying it out in specific mathematic numbers because God deals in specificity. He's not being vague. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. You might recall at the very beginning of the book of Jeremiah, the thing that Jeremiah was told was that through his prophecies, he was going to tear down, he was going to destroy, but that he was also going to build up and he was going to plant. When we think of Jeremiah's prophecies, oftentimes we think of the negative promises of you're going to be destroyed, you're going to go into captivity, you're going to die by the famine and the sword, those kind of really hard prophecies that got Jeremiah in so much trouble. But equally within Jeremiah, and we're really going to see it in the next big section of the book of Jeremiah, this is a book that includes promises that resonate to this very day, to us, to promises of a new covenant. That's coming up in the next couple chapters of Jeremiah. So the promise from God is stay there for 70 years, grow, have children, settle in, build houses. Plant gardens, pray for Babylon, because if it goes well for Babylon, it's going to go well for you. You're going to be there for 70 years, but when that's completed, I'm going to come get you because I'm the God who sent you there. I know where you are. You're still my people, and I'm going to come get you, and I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and to give you a hope. Now, I have heard that particular verse misused and maligned by so many prosperity preachers as if that is something that God said to the whole church world, and they'll say, I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare and not calamity, and then that becomes part of their name-it-and-claim-it theology. But if you look at it in context, it has to do with a specific people group who God put into captivity in Babylon, those people are there for 70 years, then God is going to bring them back, and it is that people specifically who are going to have all the plans, all the hopes, all the welfare, all the good news that's coming up in the next several chapters, because suddenly the book of Jeremiah, if you're getting bored with Jeremiah, I mean, I know we've been at this for a lot of weeks, but... It's about to get really good. The news is about to get really good in Jeremiah. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. So that's why I began by saying that it's important to see that God begins the message by saying, I'm the one who sent you into exile. Because he is the one who sovereignly put them into exile, he is also the one who can say, and then I'm going to come gather you from all the nations and all the places where I drove you. And then I'm going to bring you back to the very place from where I sent you into exile. That is all based on a sovereign God who can say 70 years in advance what he's going to do We look back on it, it's history to us, and we can say, yep, that's exactly what happened. God did exactly what he said he was going to do here. They did go into exile, and they did come back, and Jerusalem did get rebuilt. All of that actually happened because God is sovereignly in charge of human history, and he keeps demonstrating that over and over again. Now at verse 15, there is a transition Some commentators argue that that's the end of the letter. Some say that this should still be included as part of the body of the letter. But I think you'll hear as we read it that it seems to be a separate thing that Jeremiah is now announcing. He's included the letter and the letter may have ended at verse 14. But verse 15 is now speaking against those prophets who are in Babylon. Because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. For thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in this city. So he's talking about the people still in Jerusalem and the people still in Babylon. Your brothers who did not go on with you into exile, those are the particular people, the poorer people who were left in Jerusalem, they think the fact that they are still in Jerusalem makes them safe. They didn't go into exile. They're the fortunate ones. We're the ones who get to stay here. We still have this puppet king And so we're still some kind of a kingdom and a separate city. So we're the fortunate ones. And our prophets are telling us, don't worry, it's good. This is going to pass within a course of two years. So here is God's response to them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending upon them the sword and famine and pestilence, And I will make them like split-open figs that cannot be eaten due to rottenness. If that sounds familiar, it's because we already heard it back in chapter 14. Look back there for just a moment. Chapter 14. We're going to start reading at verse 13. Speaking to the false prophets. But, ah, Lord God, I said, look, the prophets are telling them, you will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you lasting peace in this place. As I keep saying, that's the message that they kept preaching to those who were still in Jerusalem. But the Lord said to Jeremiah, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who were prophesying in my name, although it was not I who sent them, yet they keep saying, there shall be no sword or famine in this land. So by sword and famine those prophets Will meet their end, and the people also to whom they are prophesying will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and there will be no one to bury them neither them, nor their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters for I shall pour out their own wickedness upon them. Okay, so that prophecy has been in place this whole time. And yet the prophets are still out there claiming peace and safety and don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. God loves you and it's going to go well for you. God responds. I'm back in Jeremiah 29. God responds. I am sending upon them the sword and famine and pestilence and I will make them like split open figs that cannot be eaten due to the rottenness. And I will pursue them with a sword, with famine, and with pestilence. And I will make them a terror to all the kingdoms on the earth, to be a curse and a horror and a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them. Because they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord, which I sent to them again and again by my servants the prophets. But you did not listen, declares the Lord. You, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles, whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Colaiah, and concerning Zedekiah, the son of Maasiah. Who are prophesying to you falsely in my name, behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he shall slay them before your eyes. Now, these two particular prophets, Zedekiah and Ahab, we don't know anything else about them. This is the only place in the Bible where they are mentioned. But what we know about them is that they are prophesying falsely. They are saying that they've heard from God. And they are bringing that same message that the false prophets in Jerusalem are bringing. Telling the captives, don't worry, you don't need to settle in. Don't build gardens, don't build houses. You're going to be going home very, very soon. And they have raised the ire of God, who says to them that they are prophesying falsely in his name. And as a consequence, God says, behold, I'm going to deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and he shall slay them before your eyes. And because of them, a curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon, saying, this is a curse now that is going to be common among the people. May the Lord make you like Zedekiah and like Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Because they have acted foolishly in Israel, and they have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and they have spoken words in my name falsely, which I did not command them, and I am he who knows and am a witness, declares the Lord. Okay, those are kind of chilling words, because here is God saying that he is going to condemn these people who have spoken falsehoods about him because he knows everything about them. They think they're getting away with it. They think that they are just simply making themselves popular or enriching themselves by giving a message that people really want to hear. And yet God declares, I am self-definitionally the one who knows, and I witnessed it. I've seen it. I've seen you do it. And as a consequence... God roasts them in fire, hands them over to Nebuchadnezzar to be burned, and God takes credit for that as well, because they acted foolishly in Israel, and they committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, which may be part of that whole fearing the prophet thing. This is going to be a tough one for me to keep going on, but... I've heard personal stories, I've heard first-hand stories from people who have been deceived into sexually compromising situations by preachers, because those preachers were able to convince them that it was somehow a spiritually good thing to keep their pastor happy. This is apparently what was also happening among the prophets here that they were exercising their authority over the people and as a consequence were actually committing adultery with their neighbor's wives. I don't think we're talking about spiritual adultery here. It was adultery with their neighbor's wives. So they were taking advantage of women, probably by the authority that they were amassing to themselves by giving these false prophecies that the people just simply wanted to hear. And on top of all that, God says... I saw it, I know it, I witnessed it, and as a consequence, these men were burned to get them out of the camp of Israel. And that's the end of the second section of this chapter. Because then, starting at verse 24, particularly, there is a statement made to Shemaiah, and uh, it says... And two, Shemaiah, the Nehelomite, you shall speak, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you sent letters in your own name to all the people who are in Jerusalem, and to Zephaniah, the son of Masaiah, the priest, and to all the priests, saying, Okay, so here's what's happened. The beginning of this chapter is Jeremiah saying, I sent a letter to the captives in Babylon. Apparently, this false prophet decided to answer Jeremiah's letter with a letter of his own. And then he sent his letter to the priest in Jerusalem. And in the letter, he's going to castigate the priest for allowing Jeremiah to go around prophesying when, in fact, he's going to call Jeremiah... Essentially a false prophet, a madman, and that he should be put in stocks and that somebody like himself ought to be listened to. So Jeremiah sent a letter. Now this Shemaiah decides that he's going to respond to Jeremiah's letter with a letter of his own. Jeremiah's letter came from Jerusalem to Babylon. He's apparently writing from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have sent letters in your own name to all the people who are in Jerusalem and to Zephaniah, the son of Messiah the priest, and to all the priests, saying, the Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada the priest, to be an overseer in the house of the Lord over every madman who prophesies to put him in stocks. And in an iron collar. So one of your responsibilities as a priest is to put madmen who are prophesying into stocks. If that sounds familiar, back in chapter 20 you might recall there was a leader in the temple. Let's go back and read it. Chapter 20, it's just the first two verses of Jeremiah 20. Jeremiah himself was put into stocks by a priest. This is an authority that they had. When Pashur, the priest, the son of Immer, was chief officer in the house of the Lord, he heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, and Pashur had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in the stocks that were at the upper Benjamin Gate, which was by the house of the Lord. So, This idea that the priest had the authority to keep the peace in the house of God, and one of the ways to keep that peace was to keep prophets who appeared to be madmen in stocks so that everybody would see the public shame of that prophet, and then they wouldn't believe what that prophet had said. So the letter that Maasaiah sent was, "...the Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada the priest." to be an overseer in the house of the Lord over every madman who prophesies, to put him in the stocks and in an iron collar. Now then, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who prophesies to you? Apparently, he didn't like what Jeremiah had to say. And pretending to be a true prophet, sends a letter to the priest in Jerusalem And says, why is Jeremiah still running around free? Why are you still allowing him to prophesy? Now, fortunately, it appears that the priest there in Jerusalem actually knew Jeremiah and had some respect for Jeremiah. Remember, so far, everything Jeremiah has been saying has been coming true. He was predicting Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar well before it happened. And so there seems to be a little bit of a fear here of locking Jeremiah up in bonds. But the argument comes, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who prophesied to you, for he has sent to us in Babylon, that's that letter that we just read, saying the exile will be long. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat the produce. So he is arguing Only a madman would say such things. So why haven't you put him in stocks yet? So what does Zephaniah the priest do? Verse 29, and Zephaniah the priest read that letter to Jeremiah the prophet. It's good to have friends. (laughs) Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah saying, send to all the exiles. That means write them a letter again saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah, the Nehilamite Because Shemaiah has prophesied to you, although I did not send him, he has made you trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to punish Shemaiah, the Nehilamite and his descendants, And he shall not have anyone living among this people. And he shall not see the good that I am about to do to my people, declares the Lord. Because he has preached rebellion against the Lord. Really fascinating to me. Here again, yet again, God has said, not hearing my word, not believing my word, but trusting some prophet who says something that appeals to your itching ears, isn't just a mistake it's rebellion against God God is so zealous for his own word that once he gives you his word his expectation is that you're going to believe it that you're going to have faith and confidence in it that you're going to trust it because it is the word of an absolute sovereign but if you go and listen to somebody who says things that God never said And if you listen to somebody who says things that appeal to you, that appeal to your flesh, that make you think that it's all going to go fine, it's going to go great for you, don't worry about it, if they come preaching a positive message that you just simply accept because it feels good to your flesh, God says that is rebellion against my word and against me personally. And that really ought to be a sobering wake-up call for every one of us. We really ought to pay attention to what God's word says. And then wherever God's word and our opinion are different, then one of us is wrong. And it's always us. Mm -hmm. It's, It's not the word of God. We need to bring our thoughts, our lives, our behavior into conformity with the word of God. To do anything other than that, God says, is rebellion against him. Now, the other thing he said here was, because Shemaiah said these words of peace to his people, words that God himself never did say, Jeremiah got it all completely correct. And just like God said in this chapter, he has sent prophets to them time and time again, telling them the truth of what's coming. And if they had just listened to the prophets, they would have been okay, because God said, you're going to go into captivity, but I'm going to take care of you. Build houses, plant gardens, have children, go on with your life. Increase as a people, and then I'm going to bring you back here because I know what my plans are for you. My plans are for good. My plans are for welfare. You just have to endure this period of time. If people will just listen to God, despite tough times, God still has your best outcome in his intentions, in his heart, in what he is doing. But notice what the punishment is. Not only does he say he's going to cut them off and he's not going to have any family among the people, but because of that, none of them are going to see the good that God says, I'm about to do. Which is even more interesting. We're talking somewhere 69, 68 years until God does it. But to God, that's a blink of an eye. And God says... And I'm about to do so much good for Israel. But he's not going to be here to see it. Because he didn't believe me. He didn't just follow my word. He didn't just faithfully go along with what my true prophet was telling him. Instead, he had to go and lie to people. And he convinced people. And as a consequence, he's rebelling against me. So he's not going to see the good I'm about to do. And the very next chapter, remember in the book of Jeremiah, there are no chapter divisions originally, because we go right from, he's not going to see the good that I'm about to do specifically to my people, that's Israel specifically, and then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from Yahweh saying, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's been using that language. I am Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's been using that all the way through the last couple of chapters. It's the only name he keeps giving himself. I am the God of Israel. I am the God of Israel. Therefore, I can punish Israel. Therefore, I can put Israel in exile. Therefore, I know where I've scattered you, and I can come get you, because I am the God of Israel. Now, that same God of Israel says, write all these words which I have spoken to you in a book. That's why we're reading the book of Jeremiah. That's why we still have it. Because all of those prophecies, all those words that God gave to Jeremiah were written down in a book. And he did that by the command of God. Write all these things which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. That's far beyond, I'm going to bring Judah back from Babylon. That's far beyond, you're going to rebuild under Ezra and Nehemiah. You're going to rebuild the walls. You're going to rebuild the temple. That's to the point of, I've scattered Israel, the northern ten tribes. I've taken them into the Assyrian captivity. And by the time Jesus is on the planet, they are the lost sheep of the house of Israel, scattered. And that's why it's so important to remember that God says, I know where I sent you. I know where I scattered you. I'm going to go find you. I'm going to go get you. And I'm going to bring you back to this land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I haven't forgotten about you at all. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and they will possess it. Have the northern tribes possessed the land of Israel yet? Nope. Nope. Do they have to? Yes. Yeah, or else we have to say that Jeremiah is a false prophet. And <laughs> we have seen over and over the demonstration that he's the only genuine prophet at this moment who's saying what God actually wants to have said. So Next week, we will begin at Jeremiah 30. By the time we get to Jeremiah 31, we're going to get into the new covenant, the promise that God is going to make specifically with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That new covenant is carried over into the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the longest verbatim quote of the Old Testament found anywhere in the New Testament, and it is via that new covenant that Gentiles like us have any hope, and are brought into covenant relationship with God. So the next portion of the book of Jeremiah uh, needs to be fully understood. It is something that we stand on, but just because we stand on it doesn't mean that it doesn't belong to the people God originally gave it to. He gave it to the very people he had sent into exile, who he's going to go get, who he's going to bring back, and give them the land that he gave to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That all has to happen, even though it hasn't happened yet. And there are plenty of preachers running around today who just because of the circumstances of life are saying things like God is done with Israel or God doesn't intend to bring them back to the land or they spiritualize all those promises and they end up speaking exactly like the false prophets that we've been talking about through the whole book of Jeremiah, saying things that God didn't say and ignoring the things that he did say and God's ire, I am sure, is building up against them because we see the example over and over again of God saying, Don't be saying what I didn't say. And if you go out and say things I didn't say and don't believe what I did say, that's rebellion against me. And that's not where you want to be. You got that? Got it. I got that all in in one night. I feel good about that.